I uh, just want to say a quick welcome to, uh, to any of you who are new or if you're just joining us for the, you know, the last few weeks or whatever, it's great to have you. Today we have the opportunity to start a new series called Countercultural Convictions, which we're really excited about. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to address kind of a different cultural topic uh, that Scripture has much to say about. Okay? Um, I would encourage you to remain uh, prayerful in the midst of this as we navigate complexities, okay, pushing up against things that maybe the world culture uh, and even like kind of the Christian culture we've created and kind of saying, does that line up with the kingdom of God? Does that line up with what the scriptures point to? And so we get to open that up today uh, by staring at and learning deeper about the authority of the Bible. Okay, and what does it have and what does it mean for us in our lives? How does it form us as a people? And so we called in a ringer for this one. Okay, uh, Wow. You don't, don't think we can do it? Okay. Um, we, we saw this and said, hey, we're going to ask a dear friend of ours to come and to preach this sermon for us. Um, those of you who don't know, Anthony and I are part of a seminary down in Phoenix. We drive down every Monday night. We stay at Anthony's parents' house uh, in Arcadia. We go to class from 6 to 9 a.m. Tuesday morning, and then we drive back up to Flagstaff, uh, and then we just start saving people and praying. You get it. And, um, and we have been doing that for about a year and a half. We only have 72 more weeks of it, I think, and so we're almost done. And the reality is, is that we truly do love it. And one of the reasons we love it is because of the professor that we get to hear from today, Mike Goheen. Uh, and this is not an exaggeration, maybe just a bit, but not, not truly. Across Redemption, I don't know if there's been a more influential author outside of the Holy Spirit friend than, than Mike Goheen has been for Redemption Church across our whole state. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we talk about when it comes to mission and scripture and the formation of a people and a lot of it has come through what the Spirit of God has done through this man. And so we're truly gifted to have him. He's a dear friend, professor, amazing husband. His wife, Marnie, cooks breakfast for us uh, every class morning, and it is phenomenal. Um, but he's also Canadian, and so he braved the weather last night, which was normal. But it also goes to show you not everyone's perfect. And so um, that was a Canadian dig. You guys didn't like it. Okay. Um, that being said, will you guys please welcome Mike Goheen to the stage? Thanks, Vince. Boy, it's good to be here. It's the first time in Flagstaff, and I came through a hailstorm <laughs> to get here, and I thought, this is Arizona. This is why I only come, uh, that's why I only live in Canada half the year to get away from this. And then I came out this morning, and the snow on my car, and I said, I keep a scraper in my car at home to take snow off, but I don't know what I'm going to use here. I tell you, thank you for the welcome, <laughs> but you can keep it. <laughs> this is not my favorite weather, but uh, it is good to be here and to see. It's all, I visit different churches every Sunday. I, we, my wife and I often try to get to two or three different churches where the different men and women that are involved in, our, in seminary, where they're preaching or teaching or leading worship or leading Sunday school or whatever, and we try to get, get around to different churches. But this is our first time to Flagstaff to see where uh, Vincent and Anthony uh, do their work. And it's be, I would enjoy it more if I could listen to Vince, but uh, you're stuck with me. 
Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we pray that your word this morning would not simply be ideas addressed to our mind. They would not simply be words addressed to our ears. But we pray that the living Christ, the power of God in the Spirit, would come to us and transform us. That we would experience your word as living and formative and powerful and that our lives would be shaped more and more to be in the image of Christ. Give us ears to hear your word. Give us eyes to see Jesus Christ who stands at the center of it all. And enable us to be the people you've called us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend, his name's Ronaldo Ladorio. You'll get to hear him a little bit next year. Ronaldo is a remarkable man. He's an anthropologist. He's a, been a missionary. He's got two PhDs, one in anthropology and one in theology. And he spent a large part of his life in northern Ghana, in Africa, among the Konkomba people. And when he got there, he, came, he, got, he got a very hostile uh, reception, especially from what Westerners have called witch doctors, sort of traditional healers, or men that play a mediatorial kind of role within that culture. And this man resisted him strongly, would follow him around and would contradict what he said and cause commotion. And for years, he was unable to break through because of the resistance of this man. Finally, a number of years into his ministry, this man embraced Jesus Christ and his life was transformed. He was also the head of a great number of people. He had many sons, they had their wives, and they had many children, and he, had a, he was the head of a huge family, almost a clan. And immediately all of them came to Christ. And because of this man's influence, more and more people came to Christ quite quickly. There was a mass conversion of many of the Konkamba people. Now the job was to get a Bible into their language. The first job he had to do, he had already learned the language well, was to reduce that language into an alphabet because it was not a, yet a written language. That took some time. And then after he had reduced that language to writing, he then set about translating the Bible. And it was a lot of work, as you can well imagine. And he spent years and years translating the Bible. He got sick um, many, many times, and he related to me that Getting sick was one of the best things that happened because then he had to stop evangelizing and he could get on with the work of translating the Bible. And he continued to translate that Bible until finally they had the New Testament written. They got it bound and they got it put into a, 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 the form of a book. And they brought a whole number of those Bibles to the front of their worship space. And then in true African style, they worshipped and they danced and they celebrated literally for hours. 
Uh, you can actually find one of their, uh, several of their songs on YouTube. But one of, that, one of the songs that they sang was they were praising God because now they said, God speaks our language. We have God's word and his words, plural, in our own language. And they celebrated just before we rejected God, but now he's come back to us. Now he speaks our language. Now he speaks to us in the Bible. And they had a great celebration. Then they decided that at the part of that celebration, the first man that would receive of the Bi- his copy of the Bible would be this traditional healer, this older man. He was quite an older elderly man by now. And he told them, I remember Ronaldo telling that emotional story about how that man walked down the middle and he was just trembling and shaking and crying all the way down. And then he got to the front and he held out his hands. He says, I don't think I can hold that book in my hands. I will, I'm afraid I will drop it. And I don't want God's word to fall on the ground. And so some elders came alongside of him, one on each side, and they said, we will hold your hands. And they held his hands as he took the Bible and he continued to cry. And the entire tribe continued to celebrate that now we have God's word in our own language. He told that story and he told a number of other stories regarding the, 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 that tribe and their relationship to the Bible. And when I heard it, I remembered thinking, I've now heard the story three or four times, but I remember thinking the first time I heard it, I wonder if we have the same joy in having the Word of God in our language. I wonder if we have the same kind of respect where he says, I don't want to drop that book. If we have the same kind of, if we have the same recognition of what an amazing privilege we have in having the Word of God in our hands. And I found myself often, as I thought of that story, repenting. We have the Bible in so many translations. We have so many tools, we have so many commentaries, so many Bible dictionaries, so many opportunities to enhance our understanding of the Word of God. And every survey that's done of the North American people, Canadians as well as Americans, is that the amount of time that the church spends reading the Bible in their homes and by themselves each year goes down. And more time spent on social media and entertainment, and other things like that. And I wonder if we have so taken for granted this book that we're unable with the Concomba people to say, wow, we didn't have God's word, but now we do. Let's celebrate God's goodness to us. What a privilege we have to have the word of God and, not only, and to have even more, we're going to be talking here in Timothy, even more than Paul and Timothy had. Because they had the Old Testament, and they had an assortment of New Testament books that were showing Christ as the fulfillment of that story. 
But they did not yet have the full New Testament canon. And when we have 27 books of the New Testament, and we have 39 books of the Old Testament, and have them put together in one book, we have an unbelievable gift to us. And have we taken that for granted? We're going to look at this text tonight, uh, this morning, just feels like tonight. We're going to look at this text this morning, and we're going to have a, it's a classic text on the scriptures. Interestingly, the Bible says very little about itself. It doesn't turn and talk about itself very much. (laughs) The scriptures point us to Christ, not back to itself. And so it talks very little about itself, but this is one of the places where it takes some time to talk about itself. And so I want to say two things by way of introduction to set the context for this. First, I want you to notice that in this text, the context of this text is the call to be contrast to the culture in which we live. That is the context. You'll notice this with two little words. The first one in verse 10, Paul says, You, however, know about my life about my teaching and my way of life. And that, however, is contrasting it to the verses that have come before where he is describing patterns of the Roman Empire. Listen to what he says. People will be, and tell me if this does not sound a lot like American culture. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having a form of godliness but denying its power. And then Paul says, but you, however, have seen that my way of life does not follow these patterns, these patterns that are characteristic of the Roman culture around about us. He's not simply describing the bad people in that culture. He's describing the cultural idolatry of the Roman Empire and the patterns that that it has produced. And he's saying, don't follow along. You've seen me and how I've lived contrary. You've seen my way of life, my purpose, and how I do not live that way. And then in verse 14, he says, and here's the other word, but as for you, but as for you, don't you follow this pattern either? And then he moves into talking about how scriptures can help you live in a different kind of way. He says, but as for you, and then he goes on to say in verse 14, Continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. I love the way Paul puts it, what you have learned and what you have become convinced of. You've not only learned about it, but you've become convinced of its truth and it's begun to shape your lives and that shaping effect that it's had in your life has shown you're convinced of the truth of it. And he says, continue in that path and don't fall back into patterns that he has described in the Roman Empire. That's the first thing. 
The context of giving of the scriptures is so that we can be a people who do not live according to the patterns of our idolatrous culture. The second thing I want you to notice is that scripture is compelling because it is embodied in those who teach it. This becomes very personal. Listen to what Paul says in verse 14. He says, But as for you, continue what you've learned to become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. You know those from whom you learned it. Who's he talking about? First of all, himself, Paul. He's saying, you've seen my way of life, and he wants him to imitate. You've known that I just didn't teach you, Timothy. Timothy is probably in his 30s, maybe closing in on 40. And Paul is probably late 50s, early 60s. And he's become like a father to Timothy. And he's shaping, helped shaping him as a pastor. And he said, Paul, uh, Timothy, you've seen my way of life. You've seen the way I've lived, that I just didn't teach you this, but that the power of God to change my life is evident and embodied before you. But he also points, no doubt, to someone else, and that is in the first chapter, verse 5. He says, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. No doubt, he says, he's thinking here, you've become convinced of this because you saw it in your grandmother. You saw it in your mother. These were, this, these were not just words on a page. This, these were not just theological ideas. You saw the embodiment of this salvation in your grandmother and in your mother. And don't you love how he says it? Which first lived in them. It first lived in them. And I am persuaded now lives in you. In other words, faith was not just a matter of confessing certain things, but it lived and showed a pattern of life. And Paul says, hang on to those scriptures because you know, you know that this shapes the people whom you love. When my wife was in university, she was an English major, and one of the most powerful ways to shape someone's thinking is not philosophy or doctrine, it's stories. And she was an English major, and she was reading many, many novels. And these novels were powerful novels to shape and form uh, her mind, and they were starting to shake her faith very badly. And she was very, very close to walking away from Christ and leaving the faith. And she had this crisis moment, and she sat on her bed, and if you know my wife, you can picture doing this. She sat on her bed, and she piled all of her novels on one side of the room, and she put her Bible on the other side of the room. And then she sat on her bed, she began to cry, and she looked which way Am I going to go? 
And she said, these have become so compelling in forming and shaping my way of thinking. This book seems so outdated in so many ways. This seems to be speaking to the 20th century. Yeah, we went to university in the 20th century. This seems to be speaking to the 20th century, and yet this book seems to be an ancient document. And she cried, and then her, where she came to was, she said, I saw this book live in my mother and my father. She says, I can't deny that this book has power because I have seen how they read it day after day after day in our home. They read it themselves. It transformed and changed their lives. And she says, I know that has got to be true. Even though these books seem more compelling. I had a very similar experience in the late 70s. I had left the faith in, during my early teenage years, and I was taken off down to Florida from where I lived in the Toronto area of Canada, and I was going down there for a lark. What I didn't know was that my dad and another man were literally prayed for me an entire night that I would come to Christ. A week later, I did. And one of the things that I remember thinking about in that was my dad embodied this. He lived this. This book was able to make him the kind of person that I want to be. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, hang on to these scriptures, Timothy, not simply because you can show evidence to show they're true. You may be able to do that. But because you've seen the people who embody these scriptures. And so that is a lot to say to us as parents, whether our kids are going to see that embodied in the home. It also has a lot to say to people like Vince and other leaders of this church. I just read an article this week about a church in Pennsylvania where a number of people left the faith because a pastor had many years before been involved in the sexual abuse of a child. And they just started saying, if this can happen among leaders, how do we know this is true? Well, Timothy is being told by Paul, hang on to this because you know the lives of those who taught you. That's the introduction. That's the background of this text. And now in a number of verses, he says, now, I, you know those whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that God's people might be formed for every good work. I want to make three points. And these three points would take a, could take a long time, but it's going to be brief. And I know you're getting good teaching here, so much of this will be familiar to you. The first thing is this. He tells us that the scriptures are God-breathed. For many years, this was translated, the scriptures are inspired. But the Greek didn't say that, and now there is no translation that says that. It says something much stronger. They are breathed out by God. The words in the page, Paul says, are breathed out by God. 
Now, what is he talking about? These words are breathed out by God. I think there's at least two things that are important for us here. Number one, that these words that we are reading carry divine authority. They don't tell us everything we want to know about everything, but they carry divine authority to lead us, as Paul says, to faith in Christ for salvation. And we can trust them because as he puts it other places in this letter, they are reliable and trustworthy and can be counted on because God uses them to lead us to faith in Christ and to salvation. They carry divine authority. And in a world, in a world where we have made ourselves our final authority, and when we read the scriptures and kind of say, well, as one student put it to me, I taught for many years in university, as one stu student put it to me, well, I don't like what Paul says there. I said, you're a Christian? He says, yes. He says, but I don't like what Paul says there. Well, if this is divine, carries divine authority, so much the worse for us <laughs> if we don't like what Paul says there. This carries divine authority, and in an age where we don't like any kind of authority over us, Paul is telling us that these scriptures carry divine authority, and we must submit ourselves to them even when we don't like it. Later, he's going to say that these scriptures have the power to rebuke and correct us. In other words, they're going to correct us from wrong ways of living and thinking, and we might not like it. And Paul is saying, but these carry divine authority. And it's not simply an authoritarian God who speaks and demands that we submit because he said so. The word of God always wants the best for his people. And when it calls us to that, he says, you don't know what's best, but I do. And when you submit to my authority, that's when you'll find the fullness of life and the fullness of what it means to be human. But there's a second thing that the God-breathed involves, and that is that the scriptures do not only have divine authority, but divine power. In our rationalistic age, where we have turned the Bible into ideas We've missed this. That Paul, in a number of places, says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That God speaks not just back then into the words we have in the Bible, but today as the word of God is read, as the word of God is preached, as it's taught, as it's studied it's then that the God continues to breathe out and it carries a degree of divine power. It's the word power unto salvation, Paul says. Or as Hebrews says, it is the living word. One author, Eugene Peterson, who's the writer of the message, says there's always the danger in Western culture that the living word will become ink word. The living word will become ink word, reduced to words, reduced to ideas, reduced to things that are directed to our mind, and not the instrument of the Holy Spirit 
to bring Christ to us and challenge us and transform us. The way the two great reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, both spoke of scriptures is something that I always think in my mind whenever I'm preaching or reading the scriptures. It's something that's become embedded in me. What they both said was that the living Christ comes to people in power clothed in the words of Scripture. The living Christ comes to God's people in power, clothed with the words of Scripture. So it's not simply ideas coming to you this morning into your ears. It should be this living Christ who's coming to rebuke, to correct, to teach, to challenge, to transform us. The scriptures are God-breathed. They carry divine authority and they carry, carry divine power. The second thing I want to talk, say, talk about here is that it says, speaks of the way that it enables us to have, make us wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Makes us wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul was a rabbi. And he remained a rabbi that now was believed that the Old Testament story had been fulfilled in Christ. And so his theology and his way of thinking remained the same in some ways, but now it was transformed and turned over by Jesus Christ. And all rabbis believed, all Jews believed, that the Bible told one unfolding story. That the God that had chosen them had created heavens and the earth, the entire world. That God had made a human pair, Adam and Eve, but that they had rebelled. And in their rebellion, it brought into the world misery and pain and sickness and death and evil and oppression. And so the world was no longer very good. But that the Bible tells us the story of God setting out on the long road of redemption. A long road that he's going to travel for thousands of years. And he begins by choosing one man and he says, Abraham, Genesis 12, what I'm going to do with you is I'm going to bless you. I'm going to restore the blessing of creation to you. I'm going to enable you to know again what it means to be human the way I meant you to be. And as I restore that blessing to you, as I save you, then you are to be a, pe you are to be a people then that are a channel of that blessing to others. And one day, I'm going to bring all the nations, people from every country and every ethnic group, finally into this community and family of those who know the blessing that I intended for Adam and Eve in the beginning and for all humankind. And the story unfolds as God forms this people, shapes this people to be a people of blessing for the nations. But you know the story goes, they fail, and they fail miserably. But that story comes to a climactic moment when Jesus comes as the representative of Israel. And he takes upon himself this whole task. And as he takes the sin of the world at the cross... He does away with the evil once and for all. And when he rises from the dead, 
He inaugurates this new world that is going to fill the earth one day. And so at the cross and the resurrection is this turning point in cosmic history when the death of Jesus does away with all the evil and pain of the world and defeats it, and when the resurrection inaugurates the new creation and the kingdom of God that will one day fill the earth. And so Paul, what Paul is thinking here is we, you, Timothy, you have your Old Testament, and you now know that that story has been fulfilled in a very surprising, shocking, and astonishing way in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus. And so now you know how that Bible leads you and others to salvation, to the person who's the climax of that story. And as you come to him and come under his, the, the death and the resurrection, you too now no longer belong to that world of evil, but now live into the resurrection life of the new creation. Paul, he says, Paul, Timothy says, follow, it makes you wise to salvation. And he's going to, in a few minutes, a few verses later, preach it, correct, encourage, bring that word to bear on the lives of people so they can know salvation as well. There was a very famous scholar. He was a scholar, he was a Hindu scholar that uh, was in one of the universities in India. And he taught world religions. And he knew world religions very well. He knew Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity. He knew them backwards and forwards. And he was a Hindu himself. And he said to a Christian once, he says, I can't figure out why you Christians have turned the Bible into another religious book. It's not a religious book, he said. It's a book that claims to tell the true story of the world, the story of humankind and the world of the entire cosmos. He says it's a world that begins with the creation of all things and a story that begins with the renewal of all things. He says this is not a religious book. It's a book that's claiming to know the meaning of history and telling us the meaning of human life and to literally address every topic. And for this Hindu, there are three things he thought. Number one, this is arrogant. That any Christ, anybody would claim to know where the world began, where it's going, and the meaning of history. Christians are out of their minds claiming that, but he was being kind. But secondly, he was even more astonished by the fact that Christians would not only claim to know that, they would also claim that in one hu uh, human Jewish male who never lived to be more than 33, a man five foot six, 150 pounds, I don't know how tall he was. I don't know how heavy he was, but he was a real man, a real man, that in this man, God revealed the fullest, fullness of his purpose for the creation and the fullness of who God is and led people to... He said, are you crazy putting your faith in one man? But then here's the third thing that astonished him most. He says, but if you are a Christian and you do believe this, why are you making the Bible something less than it is? 
Why have you reduced it to a few doctrines? A few doctrines about God and about salvation. Why have you lost this sense that no other religious book would ever dare to make a claim? No other religious book in the world claims to know where the world came from, where it's going, the meaning of history. Paul assumed this, and he says, Timothy, this made you wise to that story of salvation, that huge cosmic story of where God's taking history, and by faith you've come into that story, and now you have been called to embody that salvation. And at the center of that story has always been a people called to live out the blessing of creation for the sake of the world. And now Timothy says, you yourself, through faith in Jesus, are called into this people, called to manifest this blessing, called to live out that salvation. And he says, now, hold on to that. Hold on to those scriptures and continue in your faith as you become convinced of. There's an Australian sociologist who's an atheist. And this uh, Australian sociologist asked the question, why is it that the church in the southern hemisphere and the eastern hemisphere is growing so fast, and the church in North America and Europe is in decline? He was a sociologist, he didn't care, he was an atheist, he didn't care, but he asked that question. And one of the answers was this, and this is almost a direct quote. He said, he says, the reason that the church in the West is in decline is really quite easy to point to. He says, the church has comprehensively failed to pass along their foundation story in the Bible to the next generation of people so that they could bring that comprehensive story to bear on all the issues of life today. What an indictment by somebody outside of the church saying, what you're doing is breaking the Bible into bits and you're teaching little things here and there, but not showing the full comprehensive story in which we're called to make sense of sexuality and gender, popular culture and entertainment, technology and politics, a story in which we're called to embody the fullness of God's salvation across the whole spectrum of human life. The Bible tells a story, and it claims to be the true story of the world. And our movies, our television shows, our advertisement, our colleagues at work that are not believers, they're telling a different story calling a different way of life. And what Paul would say to us, I believe, today is, don't allow that American humanist story to shape you. Allow the biblical story to make you wise to salvation in Christ, which is a salvation that is as wide as human life for the sake of the world. And there's one more thing, and then we're done. And that is this, that the Bible offers us a toolbox of different kinds of literature to enable us to live in this story. If you know me, you know that when it comes to tools, I'm the biggest klutz that there is. Yes, thanks, Vince. Matter of fact, I don't know how to hold a hammer, which end of a hammer to hold, how to hold a screwdriver. You know, if I'm, if I'm taking a nail 
and I put the head of the nail up against the wall, I would assume that goes in the other side. I mean, I would be that dumb when it comes to tools. But what I do know is that different tools do different things. Hammers can do things that screwdrivers can do, can't do. Screwdrivers can do things that saws can't do, and wrenches, and so on. They can do different things, and you need different tools to do different things. What we have in the Bible is not simply one tool to lead us to salvation. We have a tool box. We have many tools. We have history books that tell the story of God's mighty acts and invite us to come live in them. We have the literature of law and wisdom that say this is the way God has structured and ordered the creation. Conform yourself to it. We have prophets who come with a strong rebuke and say, repent and go back to the calling that God has given you. And they speak strong words. We have poetry in which we learn to sing and, and absorb the images of the poets into our imagination. We have gospels that show us how in the words and deeds of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has fully come. We have epistles like Timothy, where the gospel is brought to bear on the lives of whole churches or people like Titus and Timothy, singular pastors, and teach them how to live out the gospel in their situation. What we have are many kinds of books that do many different kinds of things. And what Paul says here is that it's useful for teaching us, but it does more than teaches us, it rebukes us. It does more than rebukes, it corrects us. It trains us. It gives us promises to believe. It gives us commands to obey. It gives us warnings to tremble at. In other words, the Word of God constantly comes at us from many different ways to form us and shape us so that we will be, God's people might be thoroughly equipped for every good work to live out their salvation. The Bible does many things, and hopefully from this pulpit and in your own homes, you're aware of the different kinds of things that the Bible does in challenging us. And too often, we just want one kind of thing. We want the comforting promises. And it's true that the Bible does comfort the afflicted. As another person says, but it also afflicts the comfortable. It does both of those things and so much more. The Word of God has power. It has divine authority. It's the true story of the world. And it has many ways to help us live faithfully in that story. And so I conclude with Acts 2.42 to the end, where it says this about the early church. It says this early church was devoted, and the language of devotion is the devotion of an athlete. If you're an athlete, you know that you better be devoted to your sport, and that better be the main thing you're doing if you want to become good at it. And that's the language here. The early church was devoted to four things. They were devoted to the Lord's Supper. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to fellowship. And they were devoted to the Word of God. And when Luke speaks of the Word of God, he means the Old Testament story reaching its climax in Jesus Christ. They were devoted to these things because these were the means by which God brought 
the power of God to salvation to them so they could be a people that lived in contrast with the idols of their culture. Then we're told in the next verses that they lived out a life of joy and generosity and justice and mercy in the midst of their colleagues and friends and contemporaries in Jerusalem. And then we're told thirdly, that as people saw them transformed, more people were added to the church and came to believe it because they saw that word embodied. And so if Redemption Flagstaff is to be that kind of church, it needs to be a church devoted to the scriptures. Not just what Vince can do for a half hour, and I heard 62 minutes a few weeks ago. That's, that's more than most people can take, 62 minutes. But it's more than he can do in a half hour or 40 minutes. But in our own homes, reading it ourselves, reading it at our kitchen tables with our families. In other words, we need to be much more devoted to the word if we are to be a people being transformed by its power to live out and embody the good news of Jesus Christ for the sake of the world. May God bless you. May God bless you here in Flagstaff as you are devoted to his word. I'm going to pray, and then when I finish praying, I'm going to invite you just to quietly reflect on what the Spirit of God is saying to you through this language of Paul and to Timothy. Let's pray. Father, help us to be a people devoted to your word. May we submit to its authority, experience its power, live in its story more and more as we are shaped by different parts of the Bible. Lord, we pray that we would be a people of the word as it points to Jesus Christ and salvation. Bless us, Father, that we might be a blessing.